session with Dr. Farid Holakou. afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Didn't have a Monday show, so uh, doing the books today. So the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Kari by Amruta Patil. Kari Uh, K-A-R-I by Amruta Patil. This is a graphic novel um, by an uh, author artist in India who I connected with through social media and have looked for it. I've had this for a little while um, to to read one of her works. She's written several books. Uh, This is one of her earlier ones. Looking forward to reading it and discussing on next Monday's show. And you can also join the Clubhouse discussion on the book Monday at 1 p.m. Los Angeles time on Clubhouse. If you join my group Psych Talk or Psych Talks, I don't even remember my own group name, Psych Talk, I think with Dr. Fadi, you can join the, the discussion there Monday at 1 p.m. Uh, and future book club meetings as well. But let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today. It is My Time Will Come by Ian Manuel. My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime punishment, hope, and redemption. And this was a really heavy, heavy book um, where Ian Manuel shares his experience of being in prison for most of his life, starting really the age of 13. I think when he was finally sentenced, he was 14, um, up until he was, I think, almost 40 years old. And it's just a heartbreaking tale of seeing a child born into so much poverty and trauma and hardships and he does enter into a life of crime while he's still a child Um, and at the age of 13 in part of a attempted robbery or mugging on the street with a few other boys he ends up shooting Debbie Bagery um, who was at that time uh, a young mother of two in the face Uh, Debbie did survive but had to go through, um, I think it was 40-plus operations on her face. Of course, there's going to be the psychological trauma of going through something like that. Um, but thankfully, she did survive, and, and I'll mention her in the story again. But because uh, later, because she does uh, play a part in the story throughout um, Ian Manuel's life. Now, of course, what he did was horrific, robbing and shooting someone again thankfully she survived but his punishment um, to me is not justifiable but he was given life in prison so essentially he at 13 or by the time he was sentenced was 14 was basically doomed to live his whole life in jail to never be released from jail starting at age 14 and 
Um, the United States is actually the only country that does sentence 13, 14 year old um, offenders to life in prison without parole, which uh, itself is a both a type of scientific, sociological, psychological issue to consider, but one that Ian Manuel found himself in. And so he shares the heartbreaking story of what he goes through going to jail, and, and, and the majority of the book are about his experiences in prison, um, and then also his legal battles and struggles of somehow trying to achieve some type of freedom. Some Is there a way out? Is there a way that he can at least shorten his sentence in some way? And, uh, you know, the the conditions, of course, are horrible, but on top of just being in prison, he was in solitary confinement for uh, what equivalent to about 18 years consecutively from the age of about 15 or 14, 15 to, to 33 or so. Um, as he puts it from George H.W. Bush was president when he went in to solitary confinement and Obama was elected uh, and president when he, he finally came out. It's it's unbelievable and solitary confinement is another aspect of um, law and uh, punishment and the prison system that definitely has gotten lots of scrutiny I absolutely think it is cruel and unusual punishment and it is essentially a type of psychological torture to put someone deprived of all human contact 23 uh, sometimes 23 22 hours a day repeatedly for weeks months and then you know even years on end it's just horrendous um to do that and he went through that starting when he was essentially still a kid and part of the reason why was because he was too young to be in the adult general population which maybe should make us pause and think well then should he be there and, and to begin with should be he be tried as an adult if we can't allow him to be part of the the prison population um but so was his his unfortunate reality um it's interesting sometimes you know what i'm reading the books of course i'm going through it and i'm going through my own life i was going through a positive stress this week of moving and um there were stresses i was going through that were on my mind and it was definitely affecting me but it was an interesting juxtaposition and obviously gives you some perspective it's almost embarrassing to say i'm stressed about something like that um when then i was reading about the things he was going through and even interestingly so coincidentally one night probably because of stress of just everything that was going on i had this dream that woke me up that i was i forgot the exact details but the last part was a uh, cockroach went over my foot and it woke me up like kind of getting startled or uh, just you know the discomfort of that woke me up and then that day when i was reading the book he shared the story in manual i got to the part where he was in uh, a solitary confinement cell and then he started getting feeling cockroaches all over his body which is just horrific and so there i was i just had this bad dream that i woke up from but he was in a living nightmare uh, that he was sharing his experience so again a perspective of how lucky and grateful i can be for what i, I get to go through and how unfortunate other people circumstances can be um, and so reading his story was very heartbreaking but also inspiring when you you see some aspects of it so one very important part of Ian Manuel and who he is because of course when you hear a story of someone who has been in jail most of his life that becomes sometimes the most prominent thing about them but obviously he's much more than that which is another reason why it's good to to hear and read people's stories to humanize them 
where we so often dehumanize certain individuals. Um, but he is many things, including a poet and a very talented one. And at the end of today's segment, um, I'll share uh, a video from YouTube of him reciting one of his powerful poems, which actually it's called My Time Gonna Come, which is where the title of the book, My Time Will Come, um, comes from or gets its name. But he's a very talented poet, and throughout the book he shares some of his poems, um, and he says that that was something that helped get him through all those years of solitary confinement. I've actually wondered about that myself. If, you know, just more of a thought experiment, what would I do if you were ever in solitary confinement? And Because it is it, just a recipe to make you um, go, you know, basically insane, lose your sanity, lose touch with reality when we're deprived in, in all of those ways. Even when you're just deprived visually, you can experience, start to experience hallucinations. It's called um, Charles, Charles Bonnet's syndrome. Um, even people who become blind or start to experience blindness, they start to have sometimes visual hallucinations because of this. But it, it's just uh, when we're deprived in these ways, it, it impacts us negatively and one of the things he did was recite poetry work on them imagine even battling some great poets or rappers like eminem he mentions in an interview i saw uh, and even in the book he comes up but he tries to you know in that way occupy himself with that and in that darkness his poetry is a a bright light one thing though i think is interesting when people hear something like that it can feel good to us to think well then maybe something good came of, you know, oh, this was good in a way, it inspired his poetry. I saw an interview with Ian Manuel, and it wasn't exactly put that way, but you felt a, an element of that, that, oh, well, see, it, it you would have never written this poetry had you not gone through that. And I think we have to be careful about those types of conclusions or ideas because they're generally coming from our desire just to make things seem fair or right or good to go like, oh, see well it was maybe it was good this happened well, no it was a complete injustice for a a boy who did something at 13 and then to be in solitary confinement for 18 years um yes maybe something good came from that or he made something good out of something so dark but would any of us want to go be put in solitary confinement for the next 18 years to see what we come up with i think no one would say yes to that so we have to be aware of not just seeking the the um, feeling that we want of, okay, things are fair or just in the world or things make sense or, oh, this was good too, in a way. It, it was in no way something acceptable or good. I think it's incredible and inspiring what he was able to create through that or to keep his sanity through all of this. But we don't want to conflate the two and think, well, somehow that makes it good or justified. But throughout the book, as I mentioned, he also expresses and shares different legal battles he had appealing his decisions even the way he was sentenced it was not clear what was going to be sentenced and he was given again life without parole um, when he was just 14 still a teenager at some point the equal justice initiative um, brian stevenson i think is the head of that organization they got involved in his case and that was very important to help him get some free and really high quality legal assistance that eventually led to his release and, and he explains and there's so many different layers to that including some supreme court, court cases that ended up affecting his case in different ways of juveniles being sentenced at a certain age to um, certain punishments that were deemed then unconstitutional or not okay uh, that val violated certain statutes and so eventually um, he was released and as I mentioned the the woman that he shot 
Debbie Bagery. Um, it's pretty incredible. He, in looking some of, through some of his court records while he was in jail early on, he saw that her address and phone number were, were on one of them, and he actually calls her, not knowing what it's going to be like. And they, he shares some of what they talk about, and she asks him, why did you shoot me? And, you know, he does share his, you know, he didn't want to, and obviously what he was going through. And they have this communication here and there, writing letters at some points. Then for some periods of time, they no longer are in contact, but they, they get in contact. And a few times, Debbie shows up to his court hearings. And he she does express that she forgives him um, and essentially does not want him to be in prison anymore. And it really wasn't that she, you know, I saw some interviews that made it seem that it was her forgiving him that made him get released, but it doesn't at all from what I saw in the book or understood his descriptions of things. That wasn't really the case. It might have had some small impact, but really it was these other legal issues that came about that allowed for him to eventually get his freedom. Um, but, uh, But still, it's an interesting and very, I think, inspiring aspect of the story of how he shot her in the face, literally, and and then they have created a relationship. And you can see videos and images of them now hugging after he was released. And so it's a, I think, a wonderful story of redemption, of rehabilitation, of inspiration, of forgiveness, um, what, what they have created. And so I've seen some images of them hugging, and it's it's quite remarkable to see that. And maybe for us to keep in mind, most of us, if we're upset with anyone or holding on to a grudge, it's for something, you know, hundreds of times less, thousands of times less. You can't even compare it to something like this. And it could be a reminder that maybe we can have more room for forgiveness as well. But uh, I might talk some more on these issues after the break. But before before we go to the commercial break, I wanted to, as I said, share um, a poem that uh, the title of the book, My Time Will Come, by Ian Manuel is inspired by this poem he wrote while he was in uh, prison, which is called My Time Gonna Come. So this is Ian Manuel, My Time Gonna Come. I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose, and the same person that you persecute will one day be worshipped. Though I stand before you bare-chested and shirtless, with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I composed this poem not knowing if I'll ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it, like an acorn caught up in a storm, flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time gonna come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them. Like a song written, yet unrecorded, my time gonna come. Though you wrap me in chains, and sprayed me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain. My circumstances will change. I believe this with the depths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end until it's been enjoyed by Ian. 
Remember this day. Because things won't always be this way. My time gonna come. My time gonna come. Against all conceivable odds. My time will come. back so uh to start the show start talked about the book uh, my time will come by ian manuel and uh, as i mentioned it's a heartbreaking but also inspiring story of what he endured in his life and overcame but of course what he has overcome is not just about him it's about others who are also suffering and so i want to talk a bit about uh, the prison system we have in the united states and really I know it's one of those things where it's easy to say we have too many people in prison, which is definitely true, um, but wanted to look at some other aspects of it as well. So um, I checked some statistics. I think it's 2.3 million people as of 2016 are in prison in the United States, and that's a lot. It's a little under 1%. It might even be more than 1% of the um, adult population. So to me, that's just unacceptable, um, but it also begs the question, what are we trying to achieve with this? And so uh, I'm not a legal scholar, but I'll share some thoughts on my ideas of this as well, of what are we trying to accomplish by having even prisons or jails? Um, at, at times there is a need to remove certain people from the population, but I think that's much smaller than the, the number we see in the United States, way less than that. Um, and even with that, we have to be mindful of making that determination. As I said with Ian Manuel, at the age of 13, he did something and he was deemed irredeemable that his life could not really have value or that he needed to be removed from society forever. So uh, there are a few different reasons why we punish or have things like jail to begin with. One is removing individuals from society. There's also a sense that um, there has to be just deserts or a punishment that fits a crime. It doesn't feel good if someone does something wrong and there's no punishment for that. It gives a sense of justice and balance when we have that happen. There's also rehabilitation, which I think we see almost none of in our current system and actually at one point Ian Manuel uh, he mentions this part from a judge that says that the role of punishment at the time when his sentence was made or during this time period was punishment not rehabilitation that was the the function or the focus of the sentencing and what was going on um, and so we don't see that aspect very much and we should ask ourselves well why do we have the system that we have where people get punished in the ways that they do. Um, I, I think to begin with, there's one element of kind of a psychological type of a thing that plays a part, which is at times we think that we can find something bad and just get rid of it, exterminate it, terminate it, and then that's going to lead to some kind of peace uh, or calm or goodness. If we look at even the, the United States, a lot of the times, and a lot of countries have this mindset on, uh, I guess it's not diplomacy, but in the ways of trying to create peace. Well, if you kill all the bad people, if you kill all your enemies, then you're going to have peace. Then everything is good. So all you have to do is find all the bad people and kill them and get rid of them. And then you have peace. And we see that that's not at all um, the reality of the world. And it doesn't work. You can't kill yourself to peace. 
You can't just war yourself to peace. Peace involves having good relationships, having um, good, uh, respectful relationships between different people, countries, or whatever the dynamics at play are. It doesn't happen by killing everyone you don't like or who disagrees with you. And I think partially we see that with how we deal with the um, prison and punishment in the United States, that there's these bad people and we have to just put them away forever. Uh, But what does it mean, bad people? And really, to me, it's a reflection of the fact that we all have good and bad aspects and elements to us and we do that individually as well i have to just kill the bad parts of me or get rid of the bad parts of me and then i'll be okay i'll be happy i'll be healthy i'll be strong or whatever it is that we're looking at rather than recognizing that it could be that all of them are parts of us we all have these elements and it's about how to deal and manage them rather than somehow we can exterminate them or get rid of them Uh, Even clients at times will have these types of goals or um, maybe they'll bring this as a a concept of what they want to do in therapy is to get rid of this part of themselves. And usually it's, uh, you know, I let them know that that probably won't be happening and it might not even be healthy because there's probably elements to that aspect of yourself that we can learn from and that actually you need or can be beneficial in certain ways. They won't completely ever go away, but maybe we don't want them to. And I think the same is true of people in our population. Again, there could be a very select, small few of people with antisocial personality that's very strong, who um, might be violent and have no remorse. And even I would still hope we can try treatment for someone like that. But there is some people that probably would be harmful, unfortunately, no matter what. I can accept that. But like I said, the proportions we're seeing in in a country like the United States, it's definitely not what we are seeing. Um, So I think that's one aspect of it, this mindset that we can just get rid of bad things and that's it, and it's going to make everything go away. Even it's how we uh, look at the health mindset. Last week with Dr. Scott Rauer explaining things about gut and digestive health and in some ways the western mentality of health came up okay just kill the unhealthy things and then you'll be healthy and i know with cancer sometimes it can get to that point so i understand those treatments might include that but it's how we deal with almost anything okay i have a issue with this part of my liver well can we just get rid of that part of it and do this or just take a pill and erase it with the damage rather than recognizing that it's a whole system and you need to make everything function well rather than just kill the parts you don't like and so I think we have that mindset in how we deal with ourselves physically as I just talked about health wise psychologically and how we think we're going to deal with things or even feelings oh if I can just get rid of my sad feelings I'll be okay if I can just get making my anxiety disappear I'll be okay but really it's about integrating and incorporating all of that and I think the human body and the human population we can make a a type of parallel that the same thing is going on there and similarly actually taking this one step further oftentimes when we see individuals and Ian Manuel is a a clear example of that when they're in a society that's not functioning well and not functioning well for everyone well then you're going to have these types of unhealthy things come about so if you have children and individuals who are being raised in extreme poverty, impoverished um, from a 
physical standpoint, nutritional standpoint, psychological standpoint, not just neglected, but also abused. Ian Manuel shares his own abuse in various ways, including sexual abuse from his older brother. When you have individuals in these circumstances, it's going to lead to things like more crime and violence. That's a very clear um, uh, causal agent. If you have high levels of poverty, it's going to increase crime and violence. If you reduce the poverty, you reduce that violence. So rather than just thinking, well, these are bad people and we have to get rid of them, we should be looking at the system. Why are there children like Ian Manuel who at 10, 11 are on the streets and um, trying to steal or rob or do little things to make some money? Why do we have a system that's like that? And here again, the need for a just world explanations come in and people will tell themselves if I was living in some type of extreme poverty or you know this kind of environment I would just persevere and I would work hard and study hard and make my way out of that no matter what it doesn't matter where you put me and I can't say you definitely would not but for you to tell yourself that you definitely would you're also fooling yourself and lying to yourself to think you know what it's like to actually be in that situation or I've heard people even say oh if I was in prison I would just do everything right so I get good behavior and I get out so quickly because you know it's so easy it's like well do you, do you actually know what it's like to be in prison I can't say I do I visited and I could tell that I did not want to be there and I also still would not know what it's like just by visiting to actually to to serve a sentence there um, but people can think that it's easy to know what they would do in a different situation and here's where we I, I try to encourage people, including myself, to have the humility that you would, don't know what you would do in a different situation because you don't know what it actually feels like. Because when you think about what you do in a situation, you think about it without the feelings, which is quite interesting to me. I've noticed that when we try to think, oh, if I did that, I would do this. But it's because you don't know what you would actually feel like in that situation. You're just thinking actually what would feel good to do or what you would want to do. Just like if you think, oh, if I was even freezing to death, it was so cold, I think I would just be okay. It's just cold. But you don't really know what it feels like when you're that cold and what it makes you do or what it makes you want to do. Um, so similarly, it's easy to think, well, that's no excuse. And another thing that people use to bolster, or they think bolster this argument is, well, look at this one person that made it out. So, see, you can make it. And the question is, it can you make it out of a really dark situation? It's, is it fair for it to be so hard for some people to make it out? Is it just, is there justice that some children are born into a situation that is so, so much harder to get out of than others? It's not an issue of can, okay, can. Uh, let's go for a race and the winner gets a million dollars. You have to run a hundred miles. I have to run one mile. It's possible. You, you can beat me if you were so much faster and maybe I get injured or something happens, but that definitely doesn't mean it's fair. And so we have to let go of our feeling, that good feeling and comfort that comes, okay, the world is just fair. Everything is okay. It's always uncomfortable to recognize there could be something unfair and unjust because we have to do something about it which we don't want to do. And we also want to believe that we are where we are just because of our goodness, our hard work, and all of those things, when it's always going to be much more complicated than that. doesn't mean you haven't worked hard. 
to get to where you are. But it also doesn't mean that's the only reason you are where you are. There are so many other factors that, that affect that. But so coming back to, to our system, when we see that kids are violent, rather than blaming them as bad kids and irredeemable, we should look at why is society allowing for kids to, to become this way? And we really have to take a step back. And so when we punish just to punish, and really to me, when we say the corrections system or the rehabilitation system of prison, it's none of those things. It is, as that judge said, it's about punishment and punishment only and making us feel good about it, that we're punishing these people because they are bad. And the another group that gets dehumanized in a very significant way is inmates and people who have been convicted of crimes, even once they're released. Um, in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, she outlines this very well about how individuals, even when they're released, first of all, the prison system itself and how many people are in prison, she outlines well how this is unfair and has a lot of racial bias in there. But then once people are released, they're treated as second-class citizens for the rest of their lives. It's like a caste system that they're never really full citizens again. And so it's very easy for us to think, oh, see, but they're bad people. They they deserve this. But we have to also tease apart another part of the psychology of punishment, which is there can be a crime that is something wrong or someone takes a wrong action, but it doesn't mean any punishment is okay. And that's sometimes what people conflate. They'll say, well, the person did something wrong. This also comes up with, with issues with the police. If someone is shot, well, you know, they didn't listen, so they got shot. So not listening to the police officers enough of a crime to be killed, that's, uh, you know, should be... Uh, execution, they should get the death penalty for, let's say, not complying or doing something. That's what we have to also look at, is not just, is there something wrong being done? It's, is the punishment fitting the crime? And very often we just say, well, if they did something wrong, I don't really care what happened to them. But that's a big part of the justice system is not just what's right or wrong, it's what's the punishment. Imagine you went five miles over the speed limit and then you got life in jail. We wouldn't say, well, you, you, know, you went too fast. That was, that was not right. You should have went slower. So I guess that's it for you. We would say that's not right, even if we agree that what you were doing was not safe. Maybe five miles is, I don't know if you can get pulled over for that. But nonetheless, maybe it made the point. Um, so we have to be aware of when we're punishing, well, what does that do? And another thing that it's doing is that we are just punishing individuals and we're actually making them worse. We're not correcting people when we send them to, to prisons the way that they are. And Ian Manuel outlines his horrific experience in jail from, uh, in his poem, you hear him talking about gassing and how they would do some kind of chemical agents, I don't know exactly what it was, and spray them. And he talked about how it burned on his body. And he even says in a few interviews, if you saw what they did to George Floyd in public in broad daylight and it got recorded, imagine what they do to people uh, in jail when there are no cameras. And I think that I wouldn't expect anything um, less or more, however you want to put it, than that. I, I'm not surprised. But again, it's because we dehumanize them and we create a system that dehumanizes individuals and uh, the, the whole system itself is going to, of course, reinforce that mindset. Um, but when we put someone in those positions, what do you think happens when they are going to come out? How does that benefit them and how does that benefit society? So some people we just remove forever. That has its own negative issues. And I think those oftentimes those punishments definitely don't fit the crime. But then once they come out, I saw a, a, a kind of like a meme or a post recently that I thought was very powerful. 
it was talking about how for many of us, I can definitely say myself included, this last year plus of the pandemic where we were very limited socially, especially when it came to in-person interactions, very limited, that when we started to see each other now, and now I've had a few interactions with smaller groups or seeing some individuals, I felt a little bit off actually when it came to socializing, especially the first few times, it felt a little bit weird. I hadn't, you know, wasn't accustomed to that again and what it's like and, you know, how the whole thing is going to go and maybe feeling more anxious or more excited or yearning for it so much. And this post didn't get into all that detail because I saw something very brief, but I was saying we joke about this, about how we feel off socially. Imagine if you've been in jail for like 15 years where you've been deprived in so many ways and in such a worse environment. And now we say, okay, welcome back to the, the real world, the outside world, and just you should be fine here. And you also get these other disadvantages um, that come about in our legal system of um, being on probation or other things that you might be facing and then not being able to apply for jobs as easily if you've convicted a felony, getting housing, all sorts of other things, but just even from a social aspect. And so for me, that was a great point that was being made of just what we've experienced, definitely not being imprisoned, but being limited in, in what we were able to do and then getting back out there and how challenging that was. So to me, the, the system we have that's focused just on punishment does not serve the people who are being punished well, but even the larger society well. And so I think we have to look at how much we're balancing this need to punish or this feeling of punishing, bringing about justice, and the justice that comes about, first of all, treating all members of the human family as human, but also treating them with dignity so that when they're re-released in society, how is that going to benefit all of us as well? If they are more in a position to contribute and to live a healthier, better life. I don't think that's at all the system that we currently have. And it definitely involves rethinking. And of course, changing something that big is huge. And it's not something that will happen quickly or overnight. It has political implications, a lot of financial implications. We can, I won't get into the, the prison industrial complex. It's a whole business now, private prisons, and they make so much money, but they need people in them in order to keep making that money. So it sadly is a, a system where they need products and the product for them is the, the people who get in prison. So of course they don't want sentencing and things to become lighter for that reason. Um, but, but there's a lot of factors at play, but I hope it's one we'll you'll keep in mind and recognize that just because it's a called a justice system doesn't mean it's just and doesn't mean it can't be improved. Uh, I'll leave it at that for there, but definitely a topic that will come up uh, in future shows as well. Um, inspired by reading the book Ian Manuel, my time will come. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, Dr. Faiz Halakwi. Hi, thank you for calling. Uh, I read the book. Okay. Thank you very much. Good. It was very depressing also, but yeah. it was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I agree with a lot of things you say. Like, I think it is the society's uh, fault to begin with. And we should not always, you know, blame the kiddos. He was just a kiddo, you know? Mm -hmm. And what we did to him was 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 wrong because you know he's in danger with all these grown-up men in prison, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, 
it's, it looks to me, how, I want you to, I asked two couple of questions. One is, you know, how could he grow up such a nice poet, mm-hmm. such a nice person, with all these things against him, his mother, the society, the environment, the, uh, and, you know, how, how could he do this? We should give him a prize. The other thing mm-hmm. is, I, I read in, I, I'm a part of the book that, I just said my my points one after the other, okay? okay. Um, and then I hang up. At one point it said that having purple was uh, by a psychologist is a very calming color. One of the prisons he went to mm-hmm. had all everything purple. Do you agree with that? Or well, let me. You know, I know you that? wanted to hang up. Maybe it'll be easier to go because I might even forget the points. I'll say that one and I'll go back to the first one. The the purple. I remember that part. Colors definitely have an impact on us, um, but I mean the the um, the amount is what we're looking at. So if you're in a purple, I don't know if purple even is the most calming. I didn't know that. I've heard of also sometimes like light blues. Maybe that's also for myself. I like light blue. Um, but it's not, you know, they have an impact, but it's not this thing of like, it's going to have a huge change. So if we have, you know, the prisons he was in, okay, if you paint them purple, but the, the guards are beating them, it doesn't matter, you know? So it could have some small, small, small impact, I would say. It has an impact, the design and those things definitely do. But um, within a system that that is that violent and unjust and corrupt, I'd say it's a small one. Um, to say the least. And even, I don't know, you know, it's hard to say, well, if purple is calming in a way, if you make everything purple, does it make it calming? I don't know. Maybe it's even overwhelming or too much, you know. So um, color has an impact like so many things do. And even like last week I talked about the book or maybe it was two weeks ago and I forget now, noise, maybe it was last week. And, And there's lots of these things that we don't realize impact our judgment. So I definitely think that's true. But I think sometimes you have to be careful not to think, well, we made it purple, so we're, we're taking care of them in some way. So, yeah. Uh, and going back to your first point, I think that was, for me, as I mentioned, the book, as you said, depressing and heartbreaking, but also inspiring. Ian Manuel himself is such an inspiration for what he's overcome and what he's went through. It seems like he had some belief in himself that he was greater than what they were telling him he was, mm-hmm. both in words, but also in actions and in treatment that he was, you know, told his life was irredeemable and he would have to die in jail. Um, and I think the hu- humans are so resilient. And as I mentioned, I think this is why it's so nice to important, not just nice, important to read a story like this because we dehumanize. If I tell you, oh, there's this, you know, young boy shot someone in the face and he's in jail, you have a, you probably are going to have an image or you think you know that person based on assumptions and things you have. And then you read his poetry and you hear his story and you see how gentle and loving he is um, and has that side to him. And, and as I was saying in the, in the last, or maybe it was the first segment, but or yeah, last one, um, we all have various aspects of ourselves. You know, everyone we think of, even the worst person who we think is the worst person has these good redeemable qualities. And whoever you think is the best person also have negative and dark sides to them too, because they're, yeah, they're human like beings. The parents of the Babak Khoramdin, they, they look like normal people. They were talking like uh, they care about this. Some, some stuff, and then suddenly they kill two of their children and one the, the son-in-law. Those are the ones that has to be kept in the jail mm-hmm. out of the society, in my uh, belief. But when he was saying everything, I breathe the poem. Every, every time I breathe, I'm mm-hmm. remembering Floyd also uh, when he was there. Um, yeah. The way he recited it was, was even nicer. 
but sometimes we give a choice to um, to the person who is not mentally uh, capable to make the cha- the choice, mm-hmm. and we ask them, do you do want this? Do you want that treatment? Do you want this? Why do doctors do that and give uh, give the choice? Like I have a neighbor who thinks somebody lives in his in her attic. And she she is totally hallucinating, and then the doctors give them a choice: Do you want to be treated there, there, or here, or this and that? How could she decide? And her yeah. brain is already in in pain. But I want to say my my other thing about the book, and that was sometimes I thought it was a blessing in disguise that he went to jail because uh, uh, his mother wasn't wasn't a good environment for him to be at or, you know, the brother doing stuff to him. Sometimes uh, it's, uh, uh, it is a blessing that in the sky, his essence is good, which his essence was good, uh, is uh, uh, that's how he survived. But then could you tell me why you give choice to, to the... Well, to the, let me address both of those points. Um, I mean, you're right that his, uh, yeah, the way his mom didn't want him and, you know, was very uh, verbally abusive and then the brother even sexually abused him. So his environment clearly was was not good at all. I don't know, blessing in disguise, it could have been, but, to, you, you know, you read the book, you saw what he went through in prison. Is that better than what he would have experienced on no, the outside? No, 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 I don't agree. Yes, I mean, you... Probably I not. I you that, you know, yeah. we are doing it to him. Yeah. system is in fault, not him. No. But well, that's what I mean. I don't know if what he experienced in jail would it would have been worse on the outside. I mean, it's different, and, and you know, it's hard to say. But I think again, this brings up what I was saying earlier that we have to be careful not to think. I, I want to be careful not to say something good about it because then it could seem like maybe it wasn't that bad, or we're protecting them too. So it's possible that it could have been worse on the outside than the inside. But what he described, he went through. I don't think it, it, it was horrible and horrific, inhumane, unjust in so many ways that um, it's hard to say it would have been better than something else. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, and life, we, there's, it's hard when we try to do counterfactuals. What would have happened if we never know? Uh, so it's hard to say. But the other question about when we, it's a very delicate topic of medical ethics and these types of decisions of when is someone incapacitated to the point where they can't make a decision for themselves. And generally speaking, of course, we always want to give any person the right to make the decision for what they they do. When I did an internship in a psychiatric hospital, this would become an issue. They would sometimes be AMA against medical advice. And then they would sometimes have to even have a judge come in and do some kind of like a to, to kind of like determine what should be done. So these are tough cases because it depends on what we're talking about. You know, if if, if someone is like harming themselves or harming other people, then it's easier to intervene and justify it that way. But if someone is just not doing well, but they're choosing okay, to be that way. That's what I want to argue about. Yeah, but then because but it's a delicate she's thing. Not yeah, harming anybody, but she's not at all in in a sound mind sure and she needs help like a doctor should decide for him for her that has a sound mind but you know you i i see what you're saying but these are you know it, it's a it's a a gray area because with these things uh, especially historically we look at what's happened with psychiatry of just giving people medicine to to calm them or doing lobotomies you know which essentially 
changed them completely, but made them easier. And so it does bring up these issues of well, what's the, what's the right thing? Is it that we think she's not well, so we help her, but should she have some choice in that? And then how much do we help her? Uh, you know, it's, it is complicated. I don't think, I, I don't disagree with you that it seems she's incapacitated from what you're describing, but um, where do we draw so these you lines? Are a psychologist, yeah. doctor. If you see somebody in that position, would you um, inform some authorities to, you know, help her? Or you just let her go home and buy? Well, so the thing with something like that as far as notifying authorities, so there's a few things we can look at. One is to get hospitalized, let's say. Um, you know, this is actually something that would come up a lot when I was at the, the hospital, that being psychotic, which means having hallucinations or delusions, is not itself a reason to be hospitalized. You have to be either a harm to yourself or to others, or gravely disabled, meaning that you basically can't take care of yourself because you are so um, mentally or psychologically um, incapacitated. Let's say someone's walking naked on the street uh, or in the road, actually on the road where cars are. Well, we might have to hospitalize them because they're, in a sense, they're also a danger to themselves, but they're gravely disabled. Or if they're not eating anything or taking uh, some basic medication that's life-saving, then they can maybe get hospitalized. But if someone has a delusion, if someone says, I think I'm, you know, uh, the king of the world, like, I, I mean, there's not, you know, you can't hospitalize them for that. It's, it isn't. Okay, uh, don't you think, last, last thing I want yeah. to say is, uh, don't you think we should uh, uh, go over all the cases for black people and see how injustice was done to them, first by the judge, second by the authorities in the prison, and uh, how their sentence is so different mm-hmm. from a white person, and, uh, and he was like even uh, at 12 years old, he was uh, yeah. tried as a, an adult. Yeah, and then he talks about that those uh, some of those statistics of how many how much more often uh, children of color are treated as adults versus yeah. non in you know in similar cases. Yeah, and I mentioned the book by Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow. I think does a great job of in detail going through what you're talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it, would it be fair for that to happen? What you're describing, absolutely. Do I think you can go through every case? It, it, it maybe it's possible. It seems it'd be very challenging. I think it's worth having that mindset that clearly the the justice system maybe that should be in quotes with with what i'm about to say but the punishment system in the united states has been very unfair towards black americans um historically and not just historically today to this time and there's people in jail serving lifetime services uh, sentences for um, crimes that were about drugs that are even maybe legal now like marijuana which is uh, really unfair so i definitely think there needs to be a whole-scale um, look at the justice system we have and the way we punish because it's very unfair and uh, the racial bias is there from beginning to end, which, I, as I mentioned, if you want to look at that more deeply, I'd highly recommend The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander as she outlines the from basically from arrest or even before arrest to sentencing, we see the racial disparities throughout that, that play a role in that. Are so, you going to have Clubhouse? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, like I said, this week was uh, the holiday, so I did not have uh, this mm-hmm. past Monday. But yeah, it'll be next Monday on the book. Um, it's a, it's Don't a, give us a new book, please. This one I really listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this book was very good. You know, maybe because of what you're saying, I should do one later this week on this book. 
Um, maybe I'll, I'll put that up there since you brought that up because I didn't. I felt I didn't like this book not to have a clubhouse, even though yeah. it's a newer thing. Because I, I really liked this book so much and thought it was impactful. So you know, now that you're mentioning that, maybe later today I'll set one up for um, sometime later this week. I appreciate appreciate your contributions. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Faisal. Okay, have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to talk about um, a case or something that's been in the news that obviously relates to mental health, and it's about Naomi Osaka. So if you don't know Naomi Osaka, she is one of the best, I think, currently ranked number two in the world, female tennis player. And she's uh, incredibly talented and has won, I think, already four Grand Slams, which are the big, biggest tournaments or several tournaments like that. Um and I'm definitely, as you can tell by how I said those parts, not an expert on tennis. Um, but why why I was going to discuss her case is because she has brought mental health uh, into the limelight with what she's gone through. So I'll give you a little bit of a summary of what's happened. So um, taking a step back, oftentimes in almost all sports, the players, the athletes are required to speak with the media. So after the games, before the games, there are certain rules of how long and, and certain things, but they have to talk uh, to the media. And so this is at times led to some issues with players who didn't like that, the, this kind of forced feeling of having to do it. And, and, and I think Marshawn Lynch, he, he at one time in a press conference answered every question just saying, I'm just here so I don't get fined. So he didn't answer the questions or respond to them. But he just said, I'm here so I don't get fined because he would get fined if he didn't show up to the press conference. But I don't know exactly how the rules work, but he can, I think, answer however he wants. And that's how he chose to answer. So uh, Naomi Osaka, after winning her first round uh, match in the French Open, which is currently happening, she did not attend the post press conference and she was fined. And so she, there was some back and forth about that. And she made a statement about how she was going to skip all of them. I think she said something like that and, and you know, just get the fine. And it became a whole controversy with the organizations who run these tournaments, all actually saying together that she could face further disciplinary action and even be banned from competing in future events if she continued this. And so eventually... Um, Naomi Osaka decided that she was going to withdraw from the tournament. She thought that maybe that would be the best way to deal with this issue. And she did cite her mental health, saying that um, she was dealing with depression ever since, I think it was in 2018, she um, beat Serena Williams in a very famous match because um, people actually wanted Serena Williams to win, but then uh, Naomi Osaka won that match. And uh, she says after that, she was dealing with uh, depression and she deals with anxiety. Um, and she uh, describes herself as an introvert. But she essentially said, I'm going to withdraw because I think it's creating too much of a controversy and too much hubbub about what's going on. And maybe that's just the best way to also respect the other athletes, but also take care of my mental health is what she said and as you can imagine it created a lot of controversy people a lot of people supporting her but people also against her 
Now, both I've seen some tennis players supporting her. I've also seen some tennis players making comments like, well, it's hard, but you have to do it or, you know, it's part of the job. And I think there's some merit to that, that it is part of the role of what they do is dealing with the media or publicizing it. That's how the sports exist in a way is having that coverage and having that attention is what allows them to then make money and then do what they do. Um, But I think it's also bringing up these issues of mental health and how we don't prioritize it enough to the point that if someone prioritizes their mental health, uh, we don't see that as enough of a reason to do something, to, to take an action or to, in this sense, step back for a little bit to take care of yourself. And if she had a physical injury, if she broke her leg and we can show it in an x-ray, no one would say anything about, well, you know, she should still play on her broken leg or, you know, find a way to play through the pain. We'd say, no, she's, she has to, to rest her body and heal her body. But when it comes to an emotional issue, which often is a much more invisible type of a pain or illness or disability, we, we don't give it the same type of attention or the same type of response, which is what we're seeing here. And I don't want to even bring attention to people who've criticized her, but one that um, has gotten a lot of attention is Piers Morgan, who has called her all sorts of names, I think a brat and um, you know a narcissist and saying that she's using this and we can see through it. And I was very disturbed reading his article about her and the names he used to describe her, which were so nasty. Um, And then to say, I, you know, basically saying, I know it's fake. And I'm a psychologist. I would never say I know that someone is faking a depression, especially from a distance. Even if I was treating them, it's hard to say. Um, Faking a depression or I know they don't have this or that mental health issue or something. That's the part that I think is really baffling in what he said. The, The language is, of course, I think disgusting. But to then say that basically I can see through this because you're not depressed or anxious you're just uh, I think he says kind of having your media cake and wanting to have your media cake and eat it too Um, basically getting all the media attention but then when you don't like it stepping away from it or or saying I don't want that Um, but to say that you can know someone is not going through something which is invisible that we can't see doesn't make sense or I've seen people say things like well how can she have social anxiety she Um, or anxiety in general, if she's performing, playing tennis in front of thousands and then televised millions of people, you can't be anxious. And no, that's not true at all. So many very famous performers have performance anxiety, social anxiety, or introverts. Michael Jackson is a a famous case of that, that when he performed, he looked so confident and was expressing his talent so uh, confidently that you would never imagine how shy or um, anxious he was and we saw unfortunately how that contributed likely to what what he went through Um, but so you know just because someone looks okay doesn't mean they are which is also a big message here that we have to keep in mind that you don't know what someone is is going through in lots of ways but especially psychologically because we know that um, a good portion of people have some kind of psychological Uh, issue they're dealing with. We all have something, but even a full-on illness or disorder is much more common than you probably think, but we're all hiding it from each other. You know, uh, I won't show me my, my, I won't show you mine if you won't show me yours is kind of how we deal with negative feelings and psychological issues. 
thankfully that's starting to change that we are talking about them more it's more okay to talk about them they're not seen as weakness um, they are seen as an aspect of human experience that most of us go through and all of us either go through or know someone who's going through it um, and that's good that we're moving in that direction but clearly we're not there as is being evidenced here again if it was a physical dis- injury there wouldn't be no discussion but we always try to claim that a, a emotional thing is fake and i see this a lot with families i work with well my son says he's depressed but come on you know and and they say things which is actually similar yeah but we buy him everything he needs and he has a place to live how can you be depressed which is not at all um, something that protects you from depression yes if you don't have basic needs it's going to lead to added psychological distress and issues absolutely so i mean of course i touched on that when talking about ian manuel and the things we need to do to take care of all the children and all the people that we uh, have in this world and we can do that Um, but to think that just because you have those basic needs but you can't suffer from mental illness is completely wrong depression um, affects people from all socioeconomic backgrounds racial backgrounds whatever it is people get affected by uh, depression and un- other mental issues it's definitely very real and very there but because of this we we doubt it we think how can someone be depressed if they have the things they need people are saying oh you know i'm gonna feel sorry for her when she has millions of dollars and is famous and you don't have to feel sorry for her but you also don't have to attack her and, and say that she's uh, being a bad person or she's faking it because she's deciding to take some time off and first of all that's up to her to do what she wants to do if she can she wants to never play tennis again she's obviously allowed to do that if she wants to play again she can but that's not for someone else to make that determination or decision and we don't know what someone is going through uh mentally and emotionally we we have to at some level hear what they say they're going through and take their word for it you can't just um tell them what, what they feel another aspect that i've seen talked about which i think is important is that as much as we glorify uh, celebrities and athletes, and so I think that first part is a is an issue. The way we put them on a pedestal, I disagree with. Now, me saying that, I anyone who's even heard me on the show a little bit, and you probably don't even know how much I like watching sports. I do watch it a lot, and I get excited about it, and I probably praise athletes myself too much at times, or I might see them in a certain way. Although I tend to try to be a humanistic even in how I look at athletes and just realize they're people too but I'm sure I've crossed these lines as well myself but the way we put celebrities and athletes on a pedestal itself is a problem I think first because no one should get that level of um, adulation and treatment that's beneficial compared to, to other people I think that itself is a problem when we put people on this pedestal it's a problem the other aspect though um, and again, this is a I'm more people more people will think that, well, I'd rather have this kind of an issue. But we also dehumanize them in both ways. So we idealize them, but also makes them no longer human. So we can talk bad about them. And even I've noticed that about myself. I really try not to talk bad about anyone, period. But with celebrities, it sometimes feels more okay. I don't think it should, but it somehow does. It's as if there are playthings. So we can worship them and, and you know, admire them, but we can also do with them as we wish and talk negatively about them. So there's this way that we dehumanize celebrities and athletes in the sense that they're, we, we, we know, we love them, they entertain us, but they're also there to entertain us. And if we want them to, they should. And if they don't do it, they owe us. So we do feel almost like this ownership 
of them. They get dehumanized in that way as well. That, no, I want you to do this now. So we want Naomi to play tennis now. So shouldn't she? Why should she not play? When it's her decision to do so. We have to remember she's a human being first. A human being with a physical body, but also an emotional, psychological body or well-being that she's trying to address. And so as someone who loves sports and wants to see them and wants to see the best players perform, it also does make me recognize that we make performance such an important thing and that you have to do this. And if you keep performing, it's good that taking a break to take care of yourself is often seen as a weakness or a mistake or something wrong or bad. Okay, let's look at this player and how many times they've done this or that, which I get and we compare and we love to compare, but um, why are we not paying attention to how they are as human beings? Even how they are as parents or other aspects of their life, is that good or healthy looking at the system? It could be that in general in professional sports, the way athletes are expected to to act and and do things is not healthy for them long-term physically, but also, let's say, mentally. And so I applaud Naomi um, for bringing up this issue of mental health because it's often uh, overlooked. And so Naomi Osaka has brought mental health very firmly into the conversation and looking at what should we expect of ourselves, of others. Taking time off to take care of ourselves should be applauded. And also we should live in a society that not only encourages that, but creates that possibility. You know, in the pandemic, so many of us did take a hit to our mental health because of everything that was going on from the anxiety and uncertainty to actually losing loved ones to to the virus, to financial hardships, to social isolation, so many things that we would hope that prioritizing mental health or recognizing the impact of mental health would get even more attention. That, yes, we focus a lot on the financial hardships that everyone went through and challenges and the, how the economies were took it took a toll on the economies and of course the loss of life and the physical harm but what about the mental harm i hope we don't lose sight of that as well and so i as i mentioned naomi osaka to me it's an important story for us to look at because it's bringing mental health to the forefront i hope we'll respect her and i applaud her for valuing her mental health and making sure she's okay because that's most important not how many grand slams she wins or other things that are going on and also even if she wants to succeed just like for any of us the more we take care of ourselves the better we can do and keep performing in whatever it is we want to perform and when we feel ready to do so just wanted to share some thoughts on that let's go to another commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back welcome back So June is Pride Month, um, LGBTQ month. Um, And it's interesting because I I just realized that what I'll talk about in this segment, it's an interesting juxtaposition with the last segment where I was talking about how we need to value mental illness and give it the attention that it it needs. Um, And often it does not get that and we don't want to undermine what someone is going through. But what I wanted to talk about in this segment is something that sounds like it's a a mental illness, the way it's used as a term. But I think actually we want to make sure we come up with a new term for it. And that is homophobia, which you also can say homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. um, All of those are, are used to um, 
describe in a way essentially the same things. But the reason why I think we have to be mindful of this term, as I said, it sounds like a mental illness because we have phobias. There's uh, social anxiety or social phobia. Um, there's agoraphobia, then all sorts of specific phobias that you can have that are diagnosable mental illnesses that when we think of someone going through them, we consider someone who's suffering from something, a fear of something that makes their life difficult and challenging. And they're the ones that are suffering. And so it is, they are very serious mental illnesses. But homophobia is not that. Homophobia is essentially uh, intolerance or hate for people who are Let's say if we're talking about homophobia and all those together, um, sometimes the, we just say homophobia, but we mean anything related to the LGBTQ community. But it's about having intolerance, hate, lack of acceptance for a certain group of people, not a mental um, a disorder that someone is suffering from that deserves sympathy and, and support. And so I think it's very important to look at that carefully because calling it homophobia and i get it it's just become the name for it and i i think it'll be hard to change it but it does imply in some way like some fear of something that maybe even should be we should be afraid of you know if someone came to your work and said oh i have a you know uh johnophobia i'm afraid of you john um and because of that i don't want you to work here anymore and i'm gonna you know maybe even beat you up you wouldn't think okay yeah this person's suffering from some illness you'd say this person is being wrong and mean and, and they're the problem not not me and so that's the same thing we have here that people who have homophobia it's not that the people they're afraid of and they're not even afraid usually but the people they don't like dislike hate that, that are the problem they are the problem and I, I shared this in a post recently that if you hate a group of people you are the problem not them so if you hate gay people you have the problem not them and for many people that might not land very well some people i'm sure it's preaching to the choir but people who disagree might not see it that way they think no there's something wrong with them no they're they're just being who they are born the way they are um but you're the one that has an issue so we have to consider this um term very closely and clearly i don't know if anyone has any better ideas for it but it's just something that i i wanted to share and we can be mindful of and aware of but let's go to a caller line one uh you're on the air hello radio hamra you're on the air hello yes hi hi how are you dr Farid? i'm good thank, thank you so you. much for taking my call my pleasure thanks for calling thank you um, I'll go right into it. I'm a 53-year-old um, single mom, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I, I had a question regarding um, what are the protocols or what are the... Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, sorry. Um, what is the protocol uh, for online dating? Um, let's say that, um, you know, um, I met someone online and we met in person uh, one time. We spent like five or six hours because it was a long distance um, one day. And then after that, um, if I expect that person to not, you know, if we are both, you know, agreeing on uh, wanting to get to know each other better, um, does that, is it reasonable for me to say that he would not 
um, be on that website or dating site anymore until we decide, you know, we find out if we want to, you know, mm-hmm. pursue further or if, if at some point we both decide that we don't want to continue to get to know one another. This, this two times um, when I met some, um, some person, um, they wanted to continue talking or emailing back and forth with other people while mm-hmm. we are dating. So let me, sure, let me, you know, so to begin with, as far as like rules and protocols, um, there aren't going to be to me black and white things when it comes to this, because people have different expectations and that's something to look at. So it's not that there's a definitely a right thing or a wrong thing, but I'll, I'll add a few thoughts. One is, you know, you said, are there these rules to online dating? But to me, online dating, as I've shared before, is not a un a thing that's separate from dating it's a way part of dating or we can essentially say you meet online but then the rest is what are you going to do um meeting each other and getting to know each other so online dating expands the pool of people we can get exposed to which i think is very good because you, you can meet people that you wouldn't have met or get connected to but then you connect online through this app or whatever it is you're using and then you're dating in you know as if you would in real life so these issues would come up regardless now there's an app and also i know a lot of times on the apps it'll say active you know a week ago active today and so maybe you can get you clearly know that they're on this site whereas in real life you you know you can meet someone and then you're going on dates and you don't know if they're talking to other people but the same issue comes up of well are we going to be exclusive are we going to talk to other people what are we going to do as far as that goes? So that I wanted to make that distinction that to me, yes, you meet online, but then the rest is it's going to be the same as if you met some other way that now you're going to get to know each other. So but your question is one that does come up um, now, not that it's a rule, but very often people when they're dating uh, maybe some of it's cultural, maybe some of it's timing as far as the current time period, they initially will be talking to multiple people, um, especially on these apps and things. They might be talking to a few people, but even people that aren't on the apps, they might talk or text with more than one person when they're not in a relationship. And then this is the part that can get a little bit tricky is at some point of of connecting and getting to know one another, I always think it should be an explicit conversation, but a conversation needs to be had or the decision needs to be made or reached somehow of are we going to be exclusive, meaning that we won't be talking to, dating, pursuing anyone else while we really try to see what we have here. My own personal thought is that initially I think it can be okay to talk to multiple people, but if you really want to know what your possibilities are with the person to really evaluate the relationship you need to become exclusive at some point because if you're talking to multiple people you really don't get a sense of what it's like to be with this one person because you're you know i've even seen people that say well i'm talking to this one person if we have kind of a conversation i don't like i just text the other person and then it makes me feel good well no you need to know what it feels like when you don't feel good talking to that person and how you resolve it rather than going talking to someone else so um i know i threw a lot at you there but you know if you're saying i met with someone one time usually for most people they would consider that early to say we are going to be exclusive at that point but share with me some more about what you're going through um yeah so 
now that we are actually, I just recently moved, so I'm even further away from him. Mm-hmm. And um, he has been, you know, um, very transparent in a sense that when he gets on the, when he's checking his emails, you know, you get notifications. And then he um, texted me, he said, I'm just letting you know that I'm going into the website and I'm checking my messages. Um, and, you know, at the same time that I appreciated that, mm-hmm. um, it also makes me um, kind of <laughs> insecure, uh, thinking that he, because I'm the type of person I cannot be talking to multiple people at the same time. I feel like I cannot get the, all the facts straight. I need to get to know one person at a time. Mm-hmm. But... Um, then he, you know, the, the other person, he was saying that, um, well, you know, you, you are out there now starting your life afresh. If you get to meet some, uh, someone in a grocery store somewhere, um, I wouldn't feel offended. Mm-hmm. Um, so that statement, yeah, I don't know whether he's giving himself a permission to pursue other people or go on a date with other people, or is he just, you know... Well, I mean, in a way, or he's, it's not just permission, he's trying to clarify where he's at. You're right, maybe by saying you can do this, and you could have asked him, but he's trying to say that we're in a place where we don't, we're not um, off limits to other people or pursuing other people or being open to those possibilities. And and so it does seem like that's what he was trying to make clear to you, that, um, yeah, he's not in a place of committing to you 100% yet. Or, you know, and so that that could be part of a conversation you have together of well, maybe that's what you do want and you're not OK with him meeting with other people or talking to other people. You'd like to be exclusive. So you, he was saying, I want this. You're it seems like you're saying you'd like to be exclusive with him. Is that right? Yes. yes. OK. And that's something that you could bring up now. Tell me a bit about what's going on. You've met once. And I guess now you're talking about long distance on top of the online, which obviously, you know, if you're. Um, long distance it's hard for it not to be online uh, but you could have been connected by friends I guess but nonetheless tell me a bit about what's going on between you and him you saw each other one time is that correct yes um, he drove up six hours mm-hmm. to where I was mm-hmm. and um, we spent like five or six hours together you know having dinner long conversations walks um, and um you know that was it and then he drove back six hours to where he lived um we had a very nice connection as a first date Mm -hmm. um seemed to have this chemistry and um uh, mental connection um the only thing that kind of stumbled him was that the fact that i told him i believe in um no sex before marriage Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a little bit thrown off by that. And um, he said that he's never had it like that and he doesn't know how it's going to work out like that. Um, well, so that, you know. He's still talking about it. Yeah. Well, and you can you can explore that some more. And it's important to have similar values when you're dating. And so mm-hmm. making sure you are on the same page. Most people are not pers- going to be pursuing that no sex before marriage especially if they've been married and they're you know um 
uh, you know, looking for another relationship after divorce or something like that. So usually that won't be the case. So you could explore that with him some more of what that makes him think. How does he feel about that? Would he want that? Is he even looking for marriage? I don't know if you talked about that with him. Um, he is. Okay. He, he, he told me clearly that he's, um, and the reason that he's being very selective is because he doesn't want to go through another divorce. He wants to have the marriage that, you know, is going to be till end of the day. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, 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 in that sense, we're both looking for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only part that he's been thinking and he's like, he's not sure about is, and he's still saying, well, you know, um, it doesn't mean that uh, I don't want to get to know you more. I want to get to know you more and see how it works out because I've never really had this type of experience before. Okay. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it seems like you're different in, in a way of like maybe more conservative values when it comes to this because not only are you no sex before marriage, you're like, let's only talk to one person at a time. And he seems to be more open with sex before marriage and talking to multiple people so it seems like you're not exactly aligned on the values there not that that means you can't be together but it seems like it's already creating a type of a conflict that you know you're just coming at this from a different perspective where you think what he's doing is not good whereas he thinks this is actually the way it should be uh, and vice versa so that it's something that needs to be talked about and addressed and seeing what are there other areas where the values don't align because um, that's obviously going to be important. And and from your side to be aware, um, you know, this also can be because of cultural differences. In Persian culture, especially previous generations, there wasn't dating. And so then if you got introduced to someone or there was some kind of, okay, we're okay, it's like, okay, you're, we're going to get married or there's not much of this process of dating as it currently might be, let's say, in the United States of spending lots of time, getting time, getting to know each other. Oftentimes it doesn't work out even after months of dating. Um, lots of people don't have that experience. And if you, as you described yourself as a single mom, maybe you can tell me what is your own dating history like? Well, I've had two divorces. Okay. And the last divorce was in 2009. Uh-huh. And my kids are older now. They're 26 and 23. Um, basically... Uh, my experience with relationships has always been very rocky. You know, I mean, since my second divorce, I haven't had a really um, lasting relationship uh, more than maybe two months. Mm. Okay. Um, and it seems like it. I always come out, come to the same type of wall because it's. I hate to generalize this, but most of the men out there, um, they cannot accept this very fact that somebody um, does not want to have sex before marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just creating a lot of... Uh, and because, again, uh, I know online dating is really good in the fact that you get to meet a lot of people, but it seems like men uh, or people in general, they become very greedy. You know, oh, let me see what's the next best one. Let's, let me see what's the next best one. Um, it, it can I mean, have that impact because there, it's an easier way of getting, you know, as I said, maybe that's the good and the bad of it. It's good because it allows people to get exposed to more people 
So if they're trying to meet someone, but then also because they're exposed to more people, there's a sense of like, well, I can keep shopping, so to speak, and like look for other people uh, as well. Um, So, you know, we're at a commercial break, but I do want us to continue. We can talk a bit more about these walls that you're facing and what you're going through and trying to find someone for yourself. And you mentioned the, the rocky relationships you've had or your relationship history that might be worth looking at as well. But let's go to the commercial break and we'll talk after. Okay. Okay, thank Uh, you. Sure. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I'm here, Dr. Farid. All right. So before the break, you were sharing about um, what you're going through now, 53 years old, single mom, trying to get, uh, you're in the online dating, but have had some, a wall, as you put it, that you tend to have a hard time finding someone who's okay not having sex before marriage which is very important to you um and i did actually want to ask you about that for yourself if you and i know this almost in a way uh, shares a default to say that most people are going to have sex before marriage but personally what makes that significant for you where does that come from i'm sorry then not wanting to have sex before marriage you said that's something significant okay so it's a religious belief and yeah so ma- many people as i mentioned they're not expecting that so that can be an issue now without having to get into detail is it that no any kind of sexual encounter before marriage as far as even you know you don't have to say in detail but oral sex or even touching kissing what is okay for you and what's not okay um touching and kissing is fine as long as it doesn't get too far okay all right um and so, yeah, you know, you probably are going to be uh, in that way an outlier, that that's not what most people are comfortable with or expecting. But I don't think that means you need to ever compromise on your values because that, that they are yours and you can find someone that either has them or will respect them um, to, to a degree. So that's what I think you would you'd be looking for. So I think you have to be upfront about it as it seems like you are. And with this person currently that you're talking to so what was his response to that um his response was that um oh okay um i never had this kind of relationship normally there is you know there are different phases in my um you know relationships you know first dating then getting to relationship having sex moving in then marriage um you know and um but the thing when he when he was and I was asking him why is it so important to you he said because my ex um, we were not sexually compatible uh, it was great before marriage but it wasn't good afterwards she became very cold and um, my point to him was that okay so having sex before marriage is not guaranteeing that it's mm-hmm. going to be good afterwards um, yeah. so why is it so important then I mean, you're right. His, um, if that's his reasoning, it's it almost, it almost gives evidence against what he's saying because um, clearly, it, you know, some people. One of the things you'll hear is, well, you need to kind of like test things out or see how, see how things are between two people. But clearly, if he's saying it was good before and then bad after, that shows us something about getting married and then what happened to their overall intimacy and closeness probably had an impact on their sex life, not um, something about that. So. Yeah, but it it seems like he's saying because of that experience and having a bad sex life with her after marriage or in their marriage after um, they got married, that he's maybe of uh, 
hesitant or afraid of getting into a relationship where there isn't a good sexual relationship. Is is that what he did? He explain that, or I'm kind of making an assumption there, but it seems like that's what he's worried about. Yeah, exactly. And especially uh, when I explained to him, he was asking me what happened to your second divorce, and I told him that my ex was a sex addict, and I didn't know that till we got married. And uh, later on, I found out, and they said, "See, yeah, if if you had sex with him, then you would have known." about that and I and I explained to him well that's not how it works sex addicts it has yeah. nothing to do with sex itself um, it's not that they're not satisfied it's just that psychologically they are um, you know um, they are looking for next more exciting thing you know so it's really not um, you know it's more psychological um, so that, that let me let me stop you there for a second you're saying he told you see if you had sex with him this wouldn't have happened Right. Okay. Yes. Which, I mean, does show that he's, in a way, which, I mean, it happens in these types of situations. He's trying to convince you that y- your value isn't right about this, that you you should change it because, see, it was a problem. It, it led to a problem, which it's funny because both of you, it, the stories you have don't really, I, I'd say, support either of your cases in either way, really. But this is what we tend to do is we have a position we feel is more right, and then we try to come up with reasons to why it's better oftentimes even though our reasons might not even make sense so much so okay can i yes can I ask you something though mm-hmm. um because i'm open to um you know seeing both sides do you think that if somebody um if somebody's having sexual issues um and sex is a big part of marriage so two people should have sex before marriage um not necessarily uh, I do think that sex is a, a important part of a marriage and keeping that connection and relationship there and needs to be there. Um, and I think it's important to explore. I do think that there can be something there that when you have a sexual encounter, you get an idea of each other sexually. But I think that more of what is going to be done in the sexual relationship or the health of the sexual relationship involves what you keep doing it's not just a, a compatibility, black and white, like, are you a good match? And that's it. It's about a relationship you create together as well. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary um, that you have to to make sure. And if not, then, it, then it's a problem. But I think what it does involve is that both people are open to, first of all, communicating and exploring that and also open to no one should do something they're not comfortable with but they might have to be open to some new experiences with their partner in order to create a a satisfying sexual relationship for both of them so that's something from your side that you might want to be aware of is it's not that again doing something you don't want to do i'm saying even after marriage but that you know there could be some things that you're closing yourself off to that might be more okay to at least explore a little bit Um, but at the end of the day I work with a lot of couples and they've never talked about their sex life because it's sensitive because especially if they're let's say Iranian it's taboo and we don't talk about these things my partner might get offended Uh, I'm embarrassed to mention you know it's all these types of things that come up or there's also this sense that well it should just work and if it doesn't that's a problem which is not true at all the desire to have sex is very natural but having a healthy sexual relationship is not something that just happens automatically uh, naturally or if it's the right fit for the two people it's another aspect of your relationship that you need to communicate about you need to work on and explore together so um, I would say that 
because of that, it's not that you have to do it before to know, because no matter what, you're going to have to keep working on it. It's not just, oh, yeah, it's good. We don't have to worry about it for the rest of our lives. Even if it was that way from the beginning, you would need to work on it. And and oftentimes early sexual encounters aren't a good indication of the long term sexual relationship because there's there's anxieties and there's different things. There's discomforts and people aren't as, you know, open there's a lot of factors there so it's not that okay if you try it once you know what you're gonna have in your long-term relationship not at all it's much more complicated than that right so uh again um i guess it goes back to i mean if we continue to get to know each other and see if that becomes a huge issue for him is that how i should proceed with this it, it could be i mean you want to talk to him and see you know sometimes people have this mindset well if we're just dating and then i don't get that from you should i get it somewhere else I'm, I'm not saying that's the right mindset but he might be having that and that's maybe what he was even saying to you by saying if you uh, you know run into someone in the grocery store while you're both wearing masks and <laughs> somehow your eyes fall in love with each other um which it can happen you can meet someone now but uh, you know so there could be something he was saying there which might be worth exploring of where he is at like I said, because of, you know, how you're already describing things, there's a conservative side, you know, and a more liberal side to him when it comes to this. So he's more open to just, oh, you know, date and let's see what happens. And I date and you're more no, you know, no sex before marriage and also no talking to anyone else. Let's just get to know each other. You mentioned something earlier about feeling insecure that he talks to other people or something like that. Yeah, I mean, when he mentions that he goes to the, he goes to check his messages, my mind starts wondering, you know, mm-hmm. what if he's talking to other people? Maybe, you know, he made that little trip. Maybe he went and had lunch with somebody. Um, you know, I don't feel like, I mean, uh, it, it just a thought that just came to me right now, uh, it wouldn't be fair to me if I'm holding like uh okay i i don't feel comfortable talking to multiple people at the same time but he's not on the same page and if he's going and you know uh, meeting other people then it's going to put me in a bad situation it it will and i think like i said earlier i think soon maybe it doesn't have to be after the first time um you know it could be worth exploring that let me ask you something did you tell him about the no sex before he came to see you not before he came to see me. okay now i wonder if there was an expectation from him that you would have sex um i don't think it was okay uh, because um he clearly knew that i was at that time staying at my sister's house mm-hmm. and i wasn't gonna just you know uh, invite him over or something Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, we don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're right. I'm not sure. I'm just wondering if he had that expectation already in, in seeing each other driving six hours. Some people can have that expectation. I'm not saying you needed to do something um, about that, but that I'm just trying to understand where he might be at too. And so it could be worth exploring what he's looking for, what he expects. You don't know yet um, if he's going to be okay with it. He hasn't made that clear to you. Uh, but yeah, it right. does put you in a tough spot because there are lots of people that won't want that or won't be okay with that. Yeah. But I, like I said, I don't want you to compromise your values. It's personal and worth exploring for yourself what it means to you. And if it means something important to you, you know, you got to stick to that. 
it is it part of me is also to be totally transparent and honest with you um it's not only my belief um to have to not have sex before marriage but i also don't want someone to just come and um just i know this is going to sound like they are only taking and i'm giving but um I also don't want it short term type of thing. I want it to lead to marriage mm-hmm. and I'm always in the feeling that if the sex is introduced um then there's nothing else left, you know, to have after marriage and it's not going to lead to marriage. They're just going to be one of those long term girlfriend boyfriend thing. Well, I mean, I don't I mean, when there's nothing else after marriage, I guess, but you know, if you're holding that I don't know if that's a good way to start a marriage either is that you mar- let's marry each other so we can have sex, <laughs> you know, like that's the reason to commit to each other for a life. But what right. you're bringing up and also because you had a, a ex-husband who's a sex addict could also add to that. It's already a feeling that people can have, but that they're just going to want that one thing because there's a way in the way you worded it almost sound like I'll have nothing left to offer them. Like there'll be no other reason for them to marry me or stay. So maybe you're, feel like the sex part might be the most important part for them and if i have that or give them that you know using you said the taking and giving kind of terminology then why would they stay with me or what else is there to make someone stay or why would men stay maybe what you went through in the the sense that men only want that so if i give that to them they won't want me anymore which also is part of the uh, Middle Eastern mindset that many people can have of like, you know, it's the thing to get. And if you've gotten that, what else could you want from a woman, which is obviously yeah. not true at all, but that's the mindset that some people can have. So it seems like that is also there for you. And so your values are your values, but if that's part of it too, it's, it's it doesn't have to be black and white. So it doesn't have to be not at all before marriage or as soon as they want it. It could be I still want to wait to see what we have and build a relationship and then maybe we explore that if you're you wanted that before marriage but in a, a slower way that might still be slower than what some people expect um, but it might not be as black and white you know that someone can show you they care about you and then they love you or want to be with you and then that could be part of the relationship um, but it, it would never be the reason someone stays to get married you know for that especially at, at in a more advanced age sometimes people who are very religious and they never had or they don't think they can either that they, they might but probably it's not going to be a reason i wouldn't want that to be the reason someone stayed with you was, was for that you know right right yeah i mean one of my friends was saying what if you know you once you get engaged you know then um you know that would be a better time i mean there's some commitment yeah at least. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe even the way, I mean, if this is what you really feel, not to, uh, I don't want to be like your PR here, but maybe instead of saying no sex before marriage, you can say, I'd I'd like to wait a bit. You know, for me, I don't like to start a sexual relationship early in getting to know each other. So it's just making it clear for you that's off the table at the beginning. But maybe you don't have to go to the extreme. Again, if I I don't want to just do some semantics and change the wording around but even what you're saying and that if you're open to what your friend said it seems like you might be open to it um but again don't feel pressured by definitely not me and either your friend has to be something you feel okay with at the end of the day but it's something to be aware of that if you say hi nice to meet you no sex before marriage they might make them feel a certain way that okay because it also makes them think of how you might be overall with things is there some 
really rigid way of like life in general so just being aware of that but i think there is a protectiveness clearly there that they're going to yeah. just want that and uh, like i said because of what you went through with your ex i think it made you even more sensitive to that understandably and that might be worth working through we're actually out of time for today but something to look at you might want to look at the wounds that you carry from those past experiences and how they might you know we use our wounds because of them we have to protect those wounds but it might prevent us from actually creating the type of relationship we want so something to think about i do so have to do sign off that, yeah so um real quick yeah so so i mean do you think that it would be okay when we next time talk to each other i, I tell him i've been thinking about this and you know, well, um, I mean, I don't know how to well, word it. Here's the thing. Yeah. Think about it some more and then to tell him, you know, so don't, don't, you know, right now you're saying, well, should I tell him this? Well, think about it first and then see what you come to and tell him what you're thinking. You know, I'm not going to say what you should say. And again, we have to wrap up. You can call again another time. We can discuss it further, but appreciate okay. the call. Wish you the best. Thank you so much. Doctor, My pleasure. Thank you. Helpful. Have a great day. All right. Big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We have a wonderful day.